Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 392 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So excited to have Rachel Cruz as my guest. This is a return to her on the podcast. We have a really fun conversation about seven money motivations, really revealing how to make financial progress, what matters most financially. And today's episode is brought to you by the 30-Day Pivot and Generis. If you want to simplify your decision-making, get your team action-oriented but don't know how, you need to check out the 30-Day Pivot and start making progress in the next 30, 60, and 90 days. And by Generis, what could it look like to have a voice of generosity at your leadership table? You can find out at generis.com forward slash carry. Well, it's a brand new year, and uh, I sure love the folks at Ramsey. Dave Ramsey, uh, Rachel is his daughter and a two-time number one national best-selling author. She's a financial expert, host of The Rachel Cruz Show. For over a decade now, she served at Ramsey Solutions, where she teaches people to avoid debt, save money, budget, and how to win with money at any stage in life. She's authored multiple best-selling books, including Love Your Life, Not Theirs, great title, Smart Money, Smart Kids, and uh, her latest book, It talks about money habits and preferences. I think you're going to find this really helpful, not just from a leadership perspective, but from like a leadership in your own home perspective. Uh, We have a lot of fun talking about the seven money tendencies where I fall, where she falls. I think about where my wife falls on the the spectrum as well. And uh, maybe you'll play along in this conversation as well. It It was a really good one. And then um, at the end, in the What I'm Thinking About segment, I'm going to talk to you about the single best piece of financial advice I have for any leader. Um, It cut down the discrepancies over money in our house more than anything else that's coming up for those of you who listen to the end. And here we are in 2021. The world has never changed more quickly. And by now, you've got your bearings and you kind of know, okay, this is what we have to do. Now you've got this obstacle. It's like, how do we do it? Okay. Like we do an annual planning retreat, but like, you know, we did ours, but we got to change faster than that. Or have you ever done this? Have you ever walked out of a meeting? Your whole team's like, yep, we're on board. And then nothing changes the next day. Or you cast a passionate vision and everyone else kind of gives you a, a, a golf clap. If you've ever struggled with that, which is really the question of how do you implement change? How do you do it quickly enough to respond to the times? Check out the 30 day pivot. It's a new course that I developed to help leaders and their teams develop a quick pivot that they can do. We've done it multiple times over the last year and had the best year we've ever had in our company. It's the exact framework I use. And uh, you don't have to go off-site. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars on venues, meals, consultants. You can actually just do it in a 60-minute staff meeting once you know the framework. It's called the 30-Day Pivot, a short course that will help you and your team make more progress than ever in 2021. So if you want to simplify your decision-making, get your team moving, check out the30daypivot.com and start making progress today so that you can make the most out of 2020. We have some incentive pricing on that right now if you go check out the30daypivot.com. So I want you to imagine your church as a passionate community of committed givers who are always growing, right? In your head, that's the way it is. In reality, here's the problem. You got a bean counter on your board. You've got a bean counter on your staff and all your vision gets shot down. How do you change that? Well, 
My friends at Generis have a brand new initiative called Your Generosity Pastor. No, it's not a staff position. It's a, it's a voice, a way of training your team to become more generous. They want to embed a skilled generosity expert in your team who can help your entire team move beyond the how do we pay for this conversation, which I don't like. Um, to a place where the voice of stewardship and generosity permeates every conversation you have, every decision you make to disciple your people and advance your mission forward. Imagine if your board started defaulting to yes rather than no, and your team finally had the mindset they need to embrace the future. To find out what it could look like to have a voice of generosity at your leadership table, you can check out generis.com forward slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com forward slash carry. Uh, I know I lived for way too long and had to figure out the hard way how to get rid of those naysaying voices on the board and around me. And uh, yeah, you need to be fiscally responsible, but wouldn't it be amazing to have a culture of generosity define your organization into the future? Check out generis.com forward slash carry for more. Well, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel Cruz. Well, Rachel, welcome back. It's so good to have you on the podcast again. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I kind of feel like what you and everybody at Ramsey Group does is sort of like the weight loss industry. You just have perpetual job security. <laughs> and it's the same issues over and over again, right? Like, it's stuff your dad's been talking about for how, how long now is it that he yeah, started it's been, doing this? Yeah, oh, um, 25 years, I guess, almost yeah. 30 years. But no, yeah. th- I guess it'll be around 30 years. Yeah, I know. We, we always laugh. He always laughs. That's what, exactly what he says. He's like, me and Jenny Craig have a lifelong, lifelong jobs for sure. <laughs> <laughs> as long as there are people and money, there will always be money challenges, right? Yeah. yeah. So we made it through 2020 assuming this airs at some point, right? You got a new book out and the whole deal. But this, it was just a year. And, you know, I don't even know what words you use anymore, but it was just a year. And how did people's money issues from a macro standpoint, looking back with just a tiny bit of distance now, how did they get better or worse since the crisis hit? What did you see accelerated and what did you see get better in people's finances? Yeah, I think the pandemic exposed a lot. Warren Buffett always said that you can, when the tide goes out, you can tell who's skinny dipping. Uh And I love that quote because it just kind of exposes it all. And for a while, you can kind of get away with some mistakes and kind of cover up some stupid decisions because you're making money, the economy was good, and you can just kind of keep going. When everything halts, it really makes you look in the mirror and say, oh, wow, okay, what what am I doing? And for a lot of Americans, they were in a really tough position, whether they were laid off or furloughed. Or just the overriding fear of the fact of, wow, we have no savings. We have we are living paycheck to paycheck. And if something were to happen, are we going to be okay? And so what I hope it did for a lot of people is kind of had this like no matter what moment in their life. Or this, okay, you know what? No matter what, I'm not going back to how it was. No matter what, I will always have savings in the bank. No matter what, I'm going to work my way out of debt. Like those no matter what statements is what I pray people had. Uh, but obviously, I mean, the the, the sad thing is, Humans are humans. And I think, you know, from we saw it in the Great you know, the Great Recession in 08, credit card debt was right back up in about 2010 to where mm. it was. And so if we don't change our habits, we're gonna go right back to what we were doing. And change is hard. Like it's uncomfortable to say, I'm gonna do something totally different with my money. That's scary. Yeah. And so just getting to that point though, where you make that change and take that leap and knowing that there's hope on the other side, like the sacrifices you make now 
there's a reason you're making them because the outcome is greater and better than your current circumstance. Um, but sadly, people go right back to what they were doing. But my prayer is that they had some moments where they said, you know what, no matter what, will this happen again to me? So I'm curious, because this is the biggest crisis in my life, and I would assume your life, at least globally, right, so far, hopefully for a long time to come. But um, I want to ask this question. I don't know 100% where it's going, but it, it's kind of interesting. And if it's a dead end, we'll just move on. But imagine going back to March 1st, 2020. Okay, we didn't really know this was coming down the pipe. Like everyone knew, okay, there's this virus that's sort of in Seattle, but like everything's still kind of normal, right? Stock market's riding high. Um. Is there any advice you would give yourself or other people saying, hey, in that moment, I wish we had more of this or less of this financially? Like, is there something that looking back, like you've given advice for years now, so is the whole Ramsey group, but you're like, wow, had we known this was coming, this is what we all should have been looking at. Was there anything like that, that looking back that now seems even more important than it did before it hit? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, if you could go back to March 1st and like mm-hmm. scream from the rooftops. Um, I mean, I, I go tactical so easily. That's when yeah, I, was yeah. in, I But But I mean, I honestly, I think it's that emergency fund. I think yeah. for people, that three to six months of expenses that we teach was so vital because I heard the people that had it, that had no debt and had an emergency fund and emotionally, like in their voice, you could hear it so different than the people that didn't. And sadly, the people that didn't, it's not to shame them, but there's a level of terror because the unknown is so right there in front of your face. I mean, I remember one day thinking, next week, it'll everything will open back up. Like, I remember <laughs> thinking that in like April. It's like, it'll just be another week. Like, I mean, like, it's just, it's so wild. And so I think having a buffer between you and life was so much more important than ever, than ever in our world today. Because because it just gave you breathing room. If you had it, if you had that margin, you just had some some peace that sadly a lot of people didn't. And a lot of people had made some financial decisions completely out of fear. It was total fear-based, yeah. uh, which I understand. That was one thing I was trying to talk people off the ledge, right? Like they're pulling out their 401ks, they're doing stuff completely out of fear. And I'm like, no, we have to focus on the facts. So, um, so tactically, I would say that emergency fund. And then I think more on an emotional level, I would say... Um, I would scream from the rooftops March 1st, like, don't let fear be your financial advisor. Mm. What, what, what does that mean? Don't let fear be your financial advisor or what? Because people yeah, yeah. panic, right? They panic and they make really bad decisions when they panic. And so to look at the facts and what are the facts? So some people, um, I mean, they they stopped everything they're doing. Like they, some people didn't, some industries were completely gone, obviously, hospitality. I mean, there's, yeah. there's industries that are just completely slammed. But there's millions of people out of work, but there's millions of people still in their job and still making exactly what they made, but they still froze. So for seven months, they did nothing because they were in such fear, they were paralyzed, where they could have been completely out of debt. They could have been still working the system and working, but because fear took over, they did nothing. For others, fear took over. And like I said, they're cashing out investments, they're cashing out 401k, and they're penalized out the wazoo for it. And it's like, no, stay and ride the market out. Like, Like, that's the one thing we always said. It's just like, ride it out, ride it out, ride it out. Because now you look up and we're like, we're close to back where we're before, mm-hmm. I mean, from the Dow Jones perspective. And so, yeah, so so we I kept saying to people, don't let that fear, that emotion drive you. Look at the facts. You have to look at the facts. The fact is, I am going to be unemployed in a month. Like my boss told me, mm-hmm. we're being furloughed, okay? That's a fact. So now what do you do? Now you save. Take all the money you have, stop paying off debt, you save, save, save. Like when you focus on facts, a plan comes into place and gives you a level of control. I think we all got shook to the core that we have no control. Right. Um, but there's a level of control we can have with our money and basing it on facts versus fear is is wise. 
Uh, that's super helpful. And, you know, here we are at the beginning of a brand new year. We don't know what this year is going to hold, but a prediction. And again, things can change between when we recorded this and when it airs. But my guess would be uncertainty. Like, I don't think we're going back to the regular rhythms that we have been used to for years, uh, whether that's politically, economically, you know, now we got industries that are limping for a year, etc. So this may just be the same answer you just gave, but looking ahead, what would you be shouting from the rooftops today to leaders to like, guys, pay attention to this? Yeah, I would say um, pay attention to your day-to-day decisions. Because those day-to-day decisions can really make a big impact over time. And if you're sloppy in the little things with your money, then oh, your overarching finances can look really sloppy. And so I would say be as, be diligent in this season because it is a season of uncertainty. Mm. So be diligent with, with that small mundane tasks day in and day out. Like, you know, I look back on the pandemic, we'll probably get into this stuff later in the interview, but I'm like, I dropped on Amazon way too much during the pandemic. Like, <laughs> and halfway, because I'm like, I was just bored and I was just, flipping through. I mean, it was just, you know, I'm like, why? And I'm like that. And if that sloppiness was magnified and continued on for another year, that's, not, that's, 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 I mean, it's not going to like make me bankrupt, but I'm going to make some not smart financial yeah, decisions. You just blew through a whole lot of stuff you didn't need to blow that's through. That's exactly right. So I'd say, yeah. I'd say, watch the, watch the day-to-day part of your money. Having been through what we've been through, and I'm, I'm real. I've asked so many leaders this question. I'm just curious about you. You've always said a three to six month emergency fund. Does that number still reign true? Or would you say six to nine or 12 or, or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we're still saying three to six because yeah. the prayer would be by six months, you've replaced your income in some capacity. It may right. not be in the job you were in. It may be in a totally different industry, but hopefully within six months, there's something that you can do. Because like we said, some industries are gone. But others have exploded and actually were looking for, like, they're, they were hiring. Um, and so hopefully within that six months, the goal would be to replace the income. And I have faith enough in the economy that hopefully it's there's a job out there that you can replace the income. Maybe not to the extent it was, but there. Yeah. And for those of us who, who are employers, uh, you know, I had uh, one leader said to me, yeah, if you've made zero dollars in six months, you probably don't have a business anyway and you should have shut it down, right? Like, right. so there is that thought. <laughs> If your givings as a church leader are zero dollars, like maybe there are deeper issues here at at that point. Okay, no, that's super helpful. So I love your new book uh, and thanks for sending me an early copy because it talks about the why of money, just the what of money. And I find that really, really fascinating. Like it is a little bit like weight loss, right? Like if we could all figure this out, we'd all be thin, have washboard abs and, you know, be in fantastic shape and running marathons every day. Like we know what to do. I know what to do, but I just had pizza for lunch, right? So why do I eat pizza for lunch? I don't know. Like, why do I do that? Is that is that sort of where this book is coming from? Yeah, absolutely. I realized for over a decade, I have been out talking about the how-tos of money, mm. how to budget, how to get out of debt, how to invest, how to give. And I realized, well, 80% of personal finance, it's behavior. 20% yeah. of it, it's head knowledge. So like, just like you're saying, we know what to do. That's such a small part. Like, we know what to do. But doing it is so difficult. It's so hard. It creates sacrifice. You have to say no to yourself. And there's so much there and the behavior change. So I just start asking the question, okay, well, then why am I doing the behaviors I'm doing? And when you start to unpack that and unravel that, kind of go under the surface. For me, there was so many aha moments, moments that I realized, oh, wow, just having this self-awareness of who I am and why I do the things I do with money helps me because it's not just for self-awareness sake, but it really is to take that and apply it to my life and change my money habits, my money behaviors so that I can move with money faster. 
Yeah, I love you've got this thing and I saw you uh, do it with your dad, which was really interesting. And I think everyone's going to find themselves in the story here because you walk through, you call them, is it seven money tendencies that people have? So can we play that game for a little bit? And do you mind sharing a little bit where you fall and kind of walk us through it. Do you want, let's, you want to start with saver or spender, which is one that almost everyone's familiar with, but hang on, there's more that like I'd never thought of. So Yes, yep. Yeah, and I'll say this before we get started, that there's no right or wrong. So some people okay. will think like one's better, one's not. No, 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 there's not a right or wrong on the scale. It's just where, and then on most of them, if it's extreme, it can be very unhealthy. So right. like saver, spender, this is a good example. I am, I definitely lean spender, but if I'm a, Hundred. If I'm an extreme spender, then I'm broke, right? I'm just right, spending everything right. I make. So there's a level of a saver that has to be there. So there's a moderation that's that's good. Um, but yeah, I out of saver spender, definitely a spender. How about I'm you? glad you said that because you would think talking to Rachel Cruz, you know, and in the Ramsey organization, that like there is a right answer and it's saver. If you're a spender, you're a bad person, and right, why are you right. even on the show, right? Like. So I love the fact, so none of these have a moral taint to them. They're just our tendencies. And you would be a spender. Yes, I love it. I love spending money. It's terrible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do. I enjoy so it. Do it's I. so fun. Oh, so you're, you're a spender. I'm, I'm probably like, did, is it like a scale of one to 10? Rank yourself? No, I mean, I, no. Have like a, I have like a chart in the book. So you can kind of mark it uh, yeah. where you're closest. But yeah, but I, yeah. Okay, so I would say I'm not like a crazy spender because, you know, then you eventually are bankrupt and we haven't hit that place. But yeah, if it's like, ah, you want to put it in the bank or, or whatever. And what do you learn when you figure out? Or is that just like self-knowledge, like naming it and going, yep, I'm a spender? Yeah, I think a lot of it is that self-knowledge for yourself to realize that if you're in one of the tendencies and you go extreme to just have a red flag and be like, okay, yeah, I've been spending. Like, like I just said, the pandemic though, I'm like, I was spending so much. And then I had to ask myself, Rachel, why am I spending all this money? And like one answer one day, I remember I was like, because I'm just bored. And I was like, okay, well, why am I not okay being bored? I'm like, because I just don't want to sit by myself with my thoughts. You know, like, I just, I want to be busy. Why do I want to be busy? Like you start to kind of unravel of who you are and why you're doing the things you're doing. So there's a level of that self-awareness to kind of have that red flag, but also for the people around you, especially if you're married, you can start to have this language with your spouse to be like, oh, wow, that's why they're doing the things they're doing. And there's a level of empathy that comes when you can kind of not categorize them by any means, but like have words around their values and why they tend to do things with money. There's just this level of like, okay, I get it. And I can almost, I can empathize more than just thinking you're like this alien. And I have, I have no, I have no clue why you handle money that way. Um, there's a level of empathy that comes with it. Are there like, and there may not be a good answer to this, but are there predictors or life circumstances or um, personality traits that tend to draw people toward the saver or the spender side of the spectrum? Um, I think so for sure. I mean, I think when I line up all the tendencies, the seven, mm. you can definitely tell personality wise people that lean more one side of each spectrum than the other. Yeah. So we'll go down on my know, but like, um, you know, scarcity mindset, saver mindset. I mean, there's like a, there's a theme definitely through people. And so I don't know, pers- I don't know. Big like I'm just saying, wise. if you grew up in poverty, are you more likely to be a oh. saver or um, like, I'm, I'm just curious, have you, have you connected the dots or have studies connected the dots to particular personalities? There's some, yeah. In your childhood, I walked through the four money classrooms of how you grew up with money and how that shapes who you are today. So what I found, what was interesting through it all is a lot of people either mirrored very similarly what the parents did and they just kind of kept the same 
habits, the same environment, or they did the complete opposite. I never really found this medium. It was either extreme one way or the other, which is so fascinating. Uh, they either just uh, repelled against it and just did. So the poverty thing, I talked to a few people that that grew up in severe poverty and they did, of course, the exact opposite of what their parents did. They're now, they work all the time. I mean, they, they really, they have, there's a security and money for them yeah. and working and all of that, that they're, they're, because they didn't have that. And so that's another thing is that like some of it isn't rational. Like I was talking mm-hmm. to one person and they were, very well off financially, but there was still this, le- they still would pay their bills like $5 more every month just to make sure like it's covered. It's covered. <laughs> like it makes no sense, but, but because of how they grew up, they went to this extreme. Yeah. I talked to one leader. This just comes to mind. And again, very financially well off, doesn't need to worry, but only recently entrepreneur stopped taking ketchup packs and that from restaurants, you know, just because you never know when you're going to go without. Right. But that was her childhood, like growing up wow. in a trailer and a mom who never had enough. No, it's just really interesting. So we're both spenders. Okay, let's do nerd or free spirit. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is usually around budgeting specifically. Okay. So the the nerd is the one that loves numbers. They probably have Excel. Like naturally, they're very organized people. Um, they 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 know what they're doing. They love research. They love numbers. They love being in control. So the budget is like yes, game on. Mm. It's not it's not a struggle for them. The free spirit is like the um, doesn't care for details. Just kind of want to live life by the moment. A little bit more of like the YOLO. Like, or it's all gonna be. It's all gonna be okay. It's yeah. all gonna be okay. It's all gonna be okay. Um, that's the free spirit, and I I actually lean free spirit too. <laughs> okay, well, so am I. I'm there like, and it's so funny because I can read a PNL. I had to, right? Like for years leading a church and particularly a large one, it's like you better be good with that stuff. Or and you're handling other people's money. You're a steward. Yes. You're responsible. But like I I so it's that pervasive like ah, it's all gonna walk you know, work out in the end. And that created a bit of tension in my marriage. So my wife would be more on the saver side and she would be more on the nerd side, although she's not a nerd, but she'd like, we need a written plan. And you're the one who I've heard you say it a thousand times. It's like, you need a written budget, but that is a discipline for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Budgeting is the number one part of personal finance that that it's the hardest for me. I mean, after 10 Mm -hmm. years now of doing it consistently with Winston, it's now a part of our life. Like it's our rhythm. In fact, like I feel like if it was gone now, I feel like I would be like, oh gosh, I kind of need it back. Like it's that ingrained in who I am now, but my natural bent for sure, for sure is a free spirit. There's enough there. It'll all work out. It's all going to be fine. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I hope leaders are reading their own mail as we're going through this list because I thought it was a fun list. Okay, third category, money tendency is experiences or things. Yeah, so when you look at your spending, where would you value putting money the most? Do you enjoy buying experiences? So mm-hmm. going to the zoo with your kids or going to a movie, going out to a nice dinner, um, having a having a massage, like, or I don't know, vacation, like yeah. whatever it is, it's just like, yes, there's an experience there. When you walk away, you have memories, but you may not have anything tangible. Or do you value buying things instead? Is there like you want to put money? It's more kind of utilitarian that if you have the money, the you're going to pay for something. The sofa. Yeah, exactly. That I'm going to use and my money is well spent because I get to use it over and over and over again. So I'm experiences. Uh-huh. For sure. For sure. Uh, my husband is things. For sure. We're opposite on all of these, which is so funny. Um, I mean, we laugh and like compare our Christmas lists. Like our parents, God bless our parents. Our parents still buy all the adults gifts, yeah. um, which is very kind. But yeah, his mom's always like, give us a list of what you want for Christmas. 
But like, I laugh at his because mine is like literally a gift card for a massage. It's like my number one. I'm like, that's all I need. I love it. Thank you. And his is like light bulbs in the living room to connect to Alexa or something like, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Like exactly. Alexa, turn living room on. He's like, that's what I want. Um, yeah. So he's like a gadget, an Apple TV or like any, I mean, anything that he's like, we can use this over and over. Like our money is so well spent with a, having an item that we can use and it can enhance our life where I'm like, no, take me to a nice dinner and I can spend there. And what's funny, Carrie, is I looking back at our marriage, like we've been married 11 years. And that I remember that first year we got married super young. Mm. And we were on a super tight budget, this young couple, I mean, right out of college. And we're just like figuring out. I remember we would go to dinner and Winston for, for a solid year would not buy a drink at dinner. He wouldn't buy a wow. glass of wine. He wouldn't buy a Coke, nothing. Because in his head, he's like, I can literally buy a two liter with what they're charging me, or I can go buy a bottle of wine for this glass of wine. Like, yeah. no, this is crazy. And I would get so frustrated because I'm like, just experience this with me. Like, <laughs> I want you to enjoy it with me. And like, no, like, and we would just like miss each other all the time. And I'm like, are you judging me for buying like a, like a lemonade at this restaurant? You know, like we would talk about it all the time, but I'm like, oh, I now, if I had the language, I'd be like, no, it's just that he just doesn't value that stuff. It's not right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just not what he values, but I do value that. I love that stuff. I think that's what's so helpful about this because it would be easy to say, well, things, you're just greedy or acquisitive or vain, right? Like you could say that, like I really value people, but you value that stupid car that you don't want to scratch <laughs> on, right? That's exactly right. That's where it goes. Do most people marry their opposite? Is that is I that a pattern? So. I mean, that yeah. cliche, like opposites attract. Yeah. We no. see it a lot. We see it a lot within money. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably be Are somewhere you? in the middle, but tilting toward things. Um, yeah. that if yeah. I have something tangible to show for it. And I'm I'm that person. Even if we go to drive through, we're gonna have to do it tonight heading to Toronto. I will bring a drink from home because I'm not I'm gonna pay forty two cents for it or whatever it is, as opposed to a dollar forty two. And yet I wouldn't mind um, you know, buying a brand new iMac for $3,000, right? So it's, it's not sensical. It doesn't make any sense. So never claim to be consistent. Okay, so experiences are things. Quality or quantity? Mm -hmm. Yes. So when you spend money, do you, you know, I always say like the game, if you had $100, would you go buy one nice thing or would you go buy eight different little things? Like where, where oh, you yeah. naturally are bent towards. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm quantity. I would rather have, you know, all the ladies out there, all you leaders. You know, I'm like, I would rather have 18 pairs of cheap earrings than like one or two nice pairs of like real diamonds or something, right? Like, uh, just give me, give me, some, I'm good. I just want the variety. I want to enjoy it. Um, Winston, again, is quality. I mean, he needs like two pairs of boots and that's all he needs, but they're going to be nice. They're going to last years. And, and that's, that's what he wants. And so again, the extremes can start to get bad because I think quantity people, we can get stuck in this rut of like, we justify it. Oh yeah, but it's just $8 or like it has free right. shipping. So I'm just going to get this. Like, and you can kind of start to fill and scratch this itch an unhealthy itch, which is buying stuff. And then your quality people, there's a point when you live so much in that world that like anything below average is like not good. Like oh. I, I, I can't get X, Y, and Z. I can't get that watch because it's not this type of watch or, you know, oh, you, yeah. so you have to like watch the watch the status level of, of how you're feeling. So you just read my mind. It would be quality. Yeah. Okay. I think I started out quantity because, you know, you're just trying to figure this out, but then, uh, and you don't have any money and it's super tight, but like I'm at the stage of life now where, you know, we live in, like I got the lawnmower of my dreams and I would rather have one lawnmower that lasts a decade 
and it's really good and I don't have to worry about it. Same with my leaf blower and stuff like that. It's like, hey, I got it. Like, you know, the leaf blower is 800 bucks. It's what the contractors use. But like, I ain't use that thing for 15 or 20 years, right? And so I think I'm getting to that stage of my life. But you're right. There is a snobbery that can go along with that too. It's like, well, I wouldn't have one of those. Well, (laughs) well, there you go. So we're just, this is really good awareness. And uh, okay, we'll keep going. Safety or status? Yeah, so this is your motivation on why you want to win with money. Mm. So when you kind of start this process of like, okay, I want to get in control. I want to get out of debt and budget and all this. Well, why? And Mm. people kind of fall in two camps. Either it's a safety reason that I just want to feel secure. Like I just, I I don't need anything in life. I just want to feel like my money is not stressful, that it is Mm. secure. That's all I want. I want security. And then some people are status, which status sounds bad. I don't mean it's bad. It does sound like a sin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and I tried to find a different word for it and nothing came to mind when I was writing it. But but describe it because I've heard you describe it. It's helpful. you know, I I will I will I will win with money and make sacrifices so that I can do something better after. Mm. So I lean on the status side. I'm like I will budget all day long and I will save as long as I know I'm budgeting for something fun or we're saving money to go on a fun vacation or like we're gonna do something. The sacrifice is worth it because we get to do something better with it. We can we can advance our life with it. Um, where my I think my I don't, I don't know what Winston would be necessarily on this honestly, but my like I think of my sister Denise. She is she is security all the way. Like Denise, I I mean we know each other way too much to know every detail of our lives. But I'm like they've been her and her husband have been talking about building this deck for three years, and they can pay for the deck. And I'm like, build the deck, Denise. And she's like, wow, it just feels good to have the money in the bank. I'm like, you have it's fine. Like go build the deck. Like oh my, it drives me crazy. But for her, I'm like she's like I don't really need the deck. I would rather have this like safety. Insecurity of like, it's all here. And I just, it feels good. That feels good. Well, and that's interesting because you raised another point. I asked that earlier question about like stories of origin, but like same house, same parents, same story. You you lean towards status. She leans towards security. My wife is definitely more security. I'm probably more status on that. It's like, I don't mind saving, but you got to show me why. Because otherwise I'll spend it or give it away. And you know, yeah, we don't want to go bankrupt. No, we don't. But like, you know, I would, yeah. Okay, well, that that's really good to know. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. It's just like, yeah, it's going to get us to, to what we hope to do. Um, love this one. <laughs> abundance or scarcity. I think that's such a massive, like that's books in itself right there. Abundance yeah. or scarcity. So define what you mean, because that would be a term that a lot of people are used to. But what do you mean about it in the in the context of money? Yes. Well, scarcity, I mean, it's more of a limited mindset, right? That there's only so much money here. And the idea of going and getting more and having more, it's just not natural. It's not your natural bent. Or abundance is that, oh yeah, there's always, there's always more of everything. So we're okay to do this because there's always more. And what's interesting is a lot of people shun the scarcity. I feel like there's a movement of like, have an abundance mindset, have an right. abundance mindset. And there's truth to that. There really is. But again, I didn't want to make this a moral right or wrong. Yeah. And so as yeah. I was writing it out, I realized... There are like Winston is scarcity mm. and I'm abundance. And he's self-admittedly. I mean, he would he would definitely say that that is where he leans. But what he does to me is he, ba- I mean, we balance each other out, but there's parts of the scarcity mindset that are so wise. They take their time. They really think through what's going on. They get a lot of information before they do something. I mean, there's a level of this like kind of investigator mindset with people. Some people are just the unhealthy side of scarcity is just that extreme life is glass half empty. But if you have just a little bit of that tendency, you slow down. We're mm. abundance. I'm like, I think every idea is a good idea within three minutes. And I'm like, I can just keep going. And I'm like, no, 
the slow down pace for the abundance and to know not, not every idea is a good idea. And sure, is there more money out there? Yeah. But again, if that's your only mindset, you have no boundaries or, or guardrails right. in life and that's unhealthy. So so there's a there's there's good parts and bad parts to each of those for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely abundance and I think it could have gotten me in trouble. I'm probably yeah. on the extreme end, both in leadership and in life. I'm like, well, mm. we can always figure that out in the future. And then, you know, the people with a little more on the scarcity side are like, well, actually, you should really pay attention to the spreadsheet. It's like, oh, okay. All right. We'll slow down <laughs> a little bit. Right. But it's that kind of tension. Right. And exactly. okay. Uh, and then planned giving or spontaneous giving. Yeah. So when you look at your giving, you're naturally bent one way or the other. Um, are you more planned? You want it thought out, thought through? That makes you feel good inside of like, mm. yes, we are being wise. This is what we're giving to. You've researched it, you know. And then the spontaneous giving is, yeah, every time you see someone, you know, on the side of the road, you're like, oh, or you hear, you hear, this is me. I'm so bad at this. I, I get introduced to the most amazing organizations, like all over the world doing incredible stuff from like, buying cribs for orphanages in the Caribbean to, to, to rescuing sex trafficking, all of it. And I'm like, I could just give, I mean, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Like, yeah, we had a foster care adoption service at church like a year ago. I was pregnant. I was pregnant. And I was looking over at Winston. I was like, I think we're called to this. And he's like, no, I think you're pregnant. And I think we need to have this baby first and then we'll talk. But like, I, I'm so, I can be so spontaneous. So again, so you're not, spontaneous. Not Interesting. With yes. giving. Because yeah, I would I, definitely be on the plan side and it makes me feel unchristian. It's like, where is your heart? No, and it's yeah. like, it's there. And I try to be generous, but it's like, I'm going to pick my causes. And is it unusual for you to resent spontaneous giving if you're a planned giver person? I bet so. And I was going to say, this is the one that I've probably melded into the middle. I think I'm naturally spontaneous, but I act, my, my tactics are planned. But yeah. we plan spontaneous giving. So we like planned like a certain amount that like if something comes up, I can spontaneously give so I can still like live in that. Um, but but I think over time though, this is one that I've really, mom and dad have modeled this really well in my life. But the giving part, it's just a responsibility. When you look at your life and your money as a stewardship, I'm like, I if I spend more time investigating my investments for retirement than I do what I'm investing in in the kingdom, that feels backwards to me. So part yeah. of me is like, there's a level of wisdom to really dig in and, and plan well. So I think I've moved, I've moved medium to the plan side of it um, because I do think that that's wise. I mean, in, in all honesty, but, but there is a level where I'm like, if the spirit moves, like I want to be able to just give. So we've hmm. planned, we've planned some spontaneous giving. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because we're talking to a lot of leaders today. I mean, obviously a lot of church leaders, some not-for-profit leaders, but uh, and then lots of business leaders as well. But it would be interesting because, you know, I, as a lead pastor, raised money for 20 years and I am naturally a planner. It's like, here's my tithe. This is what we're going to give. This is part of our budget. It's bedrock. Here's a couple of organizations we're going to give meaningfully to. And then here's some other money for like, oh, this person's in a race and this person, you know, here's a cool cause. And so I'm very deliberate in my giving. And I think that actually ultimately can help you be more generous over time, I would hope. Um, yeah. But I wonder if it has any implication to how you raise money, because in my mind, everybody should be that way. It's like, why aren't you giving it? Why haven't you budgeted that? But I realize not everybody behaves that way, right? Exactly right. Yes. And that, that is a fascinating way to think as a leader, uh -huh. if you were in a position where you had to raise money, how that affects the way you do that even. I mean, yeah, that's that, I had never thought of that. But that is very fascinating. 
Yeah. And so I wonder, because I think a lot of people are spontaneous givers. Like they just, they saw a need and they went and, well, it's another book down the road. Okay. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about um, fears associated with money. You have a whole section on fears. Talk about a, a money fear or two that you would struggle with. And then some of the other ones that are pretty common. Yes. Well, fear was an interesting part to write because every time I hear the word fear, I always associate it as a negative thing. It's a bad Mm -hmm. thing to have fear. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to Dr. Chip Dodd and he said that fear is actually a gift and fear is literally your body's response that you are in need of help. Mm -hmm. So if a bear is coming at you, the fear of like, I'm going to be eaten or I have to run is a good fear. That is a gift that you have this fear because it makes you spring into action. So some of these money fears, I realize, can really be gifts. If you can name it, see it, be able to communicate that this is a fear that's in you, you can actually make steps to help handle that fear. But that fear is really just a reaction to say something feels off. Do I need to do something different? Now, when it moves over into anxiety, then that kind of gets a red flag of like, yeah, yeah, that gets unhealthy. But just fear in itself can really be seen as a gift, which I love that viewpoint, that perspective. And so One of the fears I see the most common, especially among women, is the lack of security. So it's the fear that if something were to happen, am I going to be okay? Mm. And the state of personal finance in America is just, it's so sadly, so terrible. I mean, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 40% of Americans can't cover a $400 emergency in cash. So like, there's a level of like, there might be insecurity with your money, and if that's a fear, then then do something with that fear. What can you do? Can you get out of debt so you don't owe anyone anything? Can you save up that emergency fund? Like put things in place that help that fear subside. So And so maybe it's a way of saying, yeah, I need help in this. So there's that fear. There's um, the fear of I'll end up just like my parents. Yeah. I've heard yeah. this one, which is really interesting. We we're talking about how you were raised. But yeah, I do meet people and they... They, it, we're like the sandwich generation where people are taking care of their own kids still at mm-hmm. home, but their parents are reaching retirement age and they don't, they haven't planned for it. They don't have the money. Yeah. So they're having to move back in. And it's like this whole dynamic. And I've had friends, two friends that that's happened to. And I remember them telling me, they're like, Rachel, I will never do this for, to my kids. Like, I won't do this. They're like, I can barely, we can barely take care of our family. And now I have to take care of my parents. Like, but they feel obligated to, right? Because it's your parents. I mean, it's like this whole mess of a situation and so many people have said, I will not end up like my parents. So that that's a fear. There's a fear of external forces, aka 2020, right? Yeah, like yeah, election, yeah. pandemic, all of it. It's like because of what's going on in the outside world, like I'll never get ahead because of everything else that I can't control. And people can get stuck in that mindset very easily of like this, it's like this paralyzing fear that because of everything going on, I'm not going to be okay financially. And having to overcome that, say, okay, what things can you control in a good way? Like, what are things that, that you can put into place that you can control and focusing on that versus the things that you you can never control? So, uh, you know, here we are at the beginning of a brand new year and we don't know what the future holds, but we do know that the financial crisis continues for a lot of people. Chris Hogan was on a few months ago and he shared that stat that um, the average retirement savings of boomers right now is about $10,000, which you know, is not going to last very long. I found that almost unbelievable. 
But I imagine like there's a lot of pastors living. There's a lot of entrepreneurs or listening, I should say. And, you know, they're boomers and they're like, yeah, I'm one of those people with 10,000 or less saved. What advice would you have for them if they're a little bit later in life? And I think this is also fueling the succession crisis that we have in the church and in businesses where mm. it's got to work five more years. I got to work 10 more years. I don't want to but I feel like I have to. Any advice for them who find older leaders, and we're going to talk about younger leaders, but older leaders who who are in that insecurity place, and it's a real thing. And I have compassion for that. What what would you say oh, to yeah. them? Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, it, and it is a scary, it, it's a scary place to be able to, I would assume, I can't say I empathize yeah. with that because I'm not, you know, in that age range, but I'm like, that that is a hard place to see because then everything else around you starts to feel like it's spiraling. Like, mm. you know, one of the fears I talk about is like not realizing your dreams. And it's like this thing you always wanted to do, but time's running out. I mean, it's just this combination of so much. But I'd say, you know, on the basic level to get yourself in a position so that you can keep investing into retirement. So that is living on less than you make, being out of debt, getting that emergency fund and be funding retirement, doing what you can to make that a priority. I think that's huge because it's never too late. I mean, ever, mm. you hear that phrase, but it's true. I'm like, if you're still if you're still breathing, you're still alive. So like, let's do something with what we have to come. And so be focusing on that. That would be one of my, definitely my biggest, biggest pieces of advice. When someone's in that situation, what would a really, like, I know you got the seven baby steps, the seven steps that you guys talk about all the time, but they're like, yeah, but I'm not 25 anymore. So what would you say is like, um, one of the best first steps that they could take? Would it be to see a financial planner? Would it be to like, what What would you suggest? Yeah, well, no matter the age, we'd still walk you through those seven steps for sure. Right. But when it gets to the, but, but when it gets to that future, yeah, I think sitting down with a financial advisor, just like you said, to, to see the landscape and to see, okay, what is it all I have? Because some people don't even have everything out visually. I'm like, there's, there's like random debts over here that you kind of have, but you don't really know how much. There's like a random account over here. I don't know, like get everything out on the table and have an advisor walk you through and look at the math and just say, okay, how much do I need to invest per year to live on X amount, whatever that is for you. And looking at your lifestyle now, currently all of it. So having someone kind of guide with you, whether that's a financial coach or a financial advisor, I would definitely get, I would get with someone else. So it's not just you and your spouse working on that, like get a third party in there. And that can really help mediate all the seven differences too, right? The money tendencies. It's like you just get a, an independent person. We found that so helpful in our own um, walk as well. You know, my wife, Tony and I. Um, let's talk to young leaders for a minute because that is the bulk of this audience. And one of the things I love about following you on social, your dad, the Ramsey Group, is you have all these stories of, you know, you have the debt fees for free scream, they're out there. And the amounts blow me away. Like they're paying off 50,000, 100,000 of dollars of debt in like a period of months, not decades. So um, speak to some young leaders there that are listening about how 2021 could be that. Like, you know, they're not making $200,000 a year and paying off 200,000 in debt. So how do those spectacular stories happen? Like what is the story behind the story? Yes. Oh, I love this so much. Because like you said, it's every range of debt, every range of income. And you're like, how did you do this? Yeah. So I think that there's just, I think the theme though, is a level of short-term sacrifice. Mm. So you have to be willing to say, you know what, for a short period of time, on average, people get out of debt in 12 to 18 months. So on average, that's, you need a year, year and a half to say, you know what, this 2021 is the year of sacrifice. And right. I'm going to, yeah, scorch earth. I'm going to live on nothing I'm going to make extra income where I can. And it's amazing what that short-term sacrifice does long-term. Like you, I look at those families 
and they have those boards with like their debt amount and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, and now they don't have debt. So when your income comes in, it's your largest wealth building tool. Your income comes in, you get to invest that and you get to give that. Like you get to do things with your income versus paying for the past. But it takes a level of sacrifice, but it's just for the short term. And like people laugh all the time, like you said, they, everyone thinks the Ramses would be like, yeah, savers, they're the best ones. <laughs> and so people are like, Rachel, look, I got my Ramsey Solutions car and it's like this beater. And I'm like, no, why is that your Ramsey Solutions car? No, go buy a new Mercedes after you get out of debt. And that could be, that could be your Ramsey Solutions. So like there's a better life. And we encourage like live a great life after it's done. But in order to live that great life, live like no one else. You first have to live like no one else and you have to look different. You're going to be weird. It's going to be hard, but it's so worth it. That's short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. And then what ends up happening is for so many people, your stuff comes into perspective mm. and you start to realize when you start selling off stuff and you know, become a minimalist for a year, I don't care. Like just get rid of everything. And it's like, there's this level of like, wow, our stuff has us under control. Mm. I mean, to a place that I don't feel like you realize until you have to sacrifice it and let it go. And so there's a there's an emotional, spiritual um, crafting that comes in the process as well that people don't talk about, but it's it's there and it's huge. Money is very spiritual, and it is one of yeah. the the under um, reported sort of sides of money for sure. Okay, uh, I know we're coming to the end of our time together, and you've been so generous. Any other aha moments? It's a substantial book. It's not like it, there's real meat to it, and it's super helpful. It's practical, but it. Any other aha moments that really surprised you as you put this piece together? Yeah, for me personally, I think as I was writing, I talked. Yeah, the beginning part. It's a talks about your childhood, these tendencies. We talked on fears. Um, grace and behavior change. And then the last half of the book is talking about give, uh, spending, saving, and giving, why yeah. we do those things and how they attach to other parts of our life. So the spending one for me always is convicting. I'm like writing to myself when I write it. Um, but I realized through it, I was like, man, I... Do you, are you into the Enneagram, Carrie? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm an eight. Okay, okay you're a what? Eight. An eight. Okay, I'm a three. Okay. So as I was doing it, I was finding myself... I used the Enneagram a little bit through a filter of like kind of understanding people as I was writing it. Because for me, spending one of my aha moments was I've learned, I've had to ask the question. I've learned to ask the question, if nobody sees this purchase, would I still buy it? And so it's, that was convicting for me. And I like wrote that out in the book as a three. And I thought, oh God, that's so good. I need to remind that. Like, so I've, so ever since the manuscript, I keep asking myself that. So that was one aha moment to see, making sure that my, my motivations are, are pure in a purchase because it's okay to buy a new pair of shoes or a new car, but like what, what, what is it really for? And so that was one of my personal aha moments. That That is a great question. You know, I've had a similar thing in the back of my mind because I tend to be a little bit OCD, even with cleaning up. And I'm like, who is this for? Like, are Mm. you trying to impress some invisible person or some person in your past? Or like, what are you trying to do? Those are really, and there's no easy answer to that, right? You can ask that yep. question for a long, long time. Yep, absolutely. Yes. Tell us about the book and where people can find you and it, Rachel. Yes. Uh, know Yourself, Know Your Money comes out or came out January 5th. And so I can't wait for everyone to read it. You can go to com. You can go anywhere books are sold. It'll be there. And yeah, I have a podcast, The Rachel Cruz Show, and a video version of it on YouTube and Facebook. And uh, yeah. Everywhere. We'll start the year. That's it. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, here's a copy. This is an advanced copy. But uh, yeah, it's a really great book. And you helped a lot of leaders today. Rachel, once again, thank you so much. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, well, that, as always, was a fun conversation with Rachel. Make sure you check out her new book. It really is solid and it's super practical. Um, Hey, we got a segment on what I'm thinking about. I'm going to give you the single best piece of financial advice I've given so many leaders privately. First time I've given it publicly, but I would love to give that to you. Uh, Next episode, however, we have Rob Palinka on. This was so fun. Rob is the LA Lakers GM and Vice President of Basketball Operations. And uh, he's been a longtime podcast listener, which uh, I learned when he reached out to me last year. They just won the World Championship, NBA World Championship. And we talk about how he manages players like LeBron James. And uh, he was a longtime agent for Kobe Bryant. There's a fascinating story in on that. Keys to negotiation, why Kobe Bryant invited him to swim with great white sharks and so much more. Here's an excerpt. He was trying to formulate a new aspect of his game and the way he moved on the court. And he was drawing inspiration from how great white sharks attacked. And so, you know, I I get a call from Kobe and he says, hey, I want to I want to take a boat out to the Farallon Islands, which is 20. You know, it's a it's a long boat ride off of the coast of Mexico. And, you know, before you know it, we're out there in a cage watching these massive creatures just swim around us. And he's he's studying how that may you know, affect how he moves around on the court and how he attacks the basket. That is a don't miss conversation next week. I know a lot of you are Lakers fans, basketball fans, so you're going to love that. Also, we have confirmed as guests for 2021, Seth Godin, Hannah Brencher, Craig Rochelle, John Cotter from Harvard Business School, Cal Newport, Adam Grant, and so many others. I'm so pumped for this year. And uh, thanks. If this episode has been helpful to you, make sure you share it. Share it with your team. Share it with your friends. Did you know that we have show notes? You can go for this episode to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 392. You can get transcript, show notes, the whole deal, quotables that you can share. And when you share this podcast, we all get better and we can bring you the top guests that we can get a hold of. So uh, thank you for completing the virtuous loop for us. And uh, do a shout out on social. Um, I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff, Twitter, and Facebook. When you share the show, uh, we share it with our listeners as well. So uh, anyway, a lot coming up in 2021. Now it's time for what I'm thinking about. This segment is brought to you by Generis. If you would like to change the mindset and have a voice of generosity at your leadership table, learn more at generis.com forward slash carry. And by the 30-day pivot, if you want to simplify your decision-making and actually make progress with all the pivots you want to make this year, go to the 30daypivot.com and get your team moving in the same direction today. We have some incentive pricing on that. So now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I want to talk to you about, uh, because Rachel and I, uh, as we do from time to time, talked a lot about financial tips and advice. And everybody thinks about budgeting. Uh, Maybe you have an investment advisor. But I'll tell you, the the single best move that my wife and I have made financially. I mean, we've always been a little bit conservative financially, probably lived below our means, et cetera, et cetera. But it took me years to figure this out. So when leaders ask me personally, they're like, Carrie, what's, what's, do you have any financial advice? I tell them this, hire an independent financial planner. Just three words, independent financial planner. We did this in the last decade and it was game changing for us. So, you know, as Rachel and I talk about, you tend not to marry someone with your exact mindset when it comes to money. So Tony would be definitely the saver in our relationship. My wife, I would be a little bit more on the spending side, even though I'm not like a crazy spender. I do not mind spending dollars. And one of the points we could never find agreement on um, exactly 
was was how much money we needed to save for retirement, even though I don't really plan on retiring. But you know what I mean? You don't want to be a burden to people. You want to be responsible with the money that God's given you, etc. And so we tried it in a number of different ways in the first 20 years of our marriage. We uh, went to an investment advisor. So not an independent financial planner, but somebody who helped us save for retirement, you know, pick mutual funds and savings instruments and stocks and that kind of thing. And what I've found, we have a great financial planner. Um, our, our current one is fantastic, but it's generally like, well, you can never have enough, right? Because um, the more you give them, the more they make. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying they don't. their job is not to create a financial plan. And I remember talking to one early on, not our current advisor, and he made it feel like we need to save, you know, millions of dollars for retirement. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, don't, first of all, I'm a pastor. Secondly, like, basically, you want me to give you my whole paycheck? That's what you want? So that didn't work. We turned to people that we trusted in the church for financial advice. Uh, one time, one guy said, you know, you need to give less. And I'm like, well, we don't want to give less. We actually enjoy, we feel called to it. We, we feel like that's something we need to do. And so it was always this scramble with conflicting advice and uh, nobody could actually write it out on paper for us. And we had no idea how much we really needed to save for retirement. And yes, you can DIY and you can Google it and you can get all those calculators, et cetera. But like, how do I know whether it's right? So a few years ago, we just, uh, as part of the accountant that we work with, uh, found an independent financial planner. Uh, His name's Mitch, came over to our house, met with us. And uh, he said, what are your goals and objectives? So we talked about our our giving goals and our giving objectives. And uh, he set up like, you know, what about your lifestyle? What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? And blah, blah, blah. And he came together with a a financial plan. And he said, here's what you need to do, Carrie and Tony. He said, you just need to save X number of dollars a year and you're going to be fine in retirement. And we're like, what? Okay, that's a stretch, but it's doable. It's not like a crazy number like we've been given before. And, and you're kidding me, like, that's, that's what we need to do. And then by the time you, you reach your mid-60s, you're, you're fine. Yep, that's it. And you're not telling us to give less? Nope. And we get to put the kids through school? Yep. And it just, like, you know, everything that was mystery just stopped being a mystery. And that was because it was an independent financial planner. Now, we still have an investment advisor. We have an accountant. You know, we have different people. But that role is very hard to find. And a lot of people will say, oh, I'll do a financial plan for you. But the nice thing about an independent financial planner is that they're not also managing your retirement savings. Their only job is to come up with a plan. Now, ours was a fee for service. It uh, cost us, you know, a moderate amount of money. And you might look at what it costs for that and balk. But my goodness, if you have peace of mind, like since that moment, which happened for us in the last decade, we just don't argue. It's like, well, we we hit our number. That's it. And so now we can, and we hit our giving numbers. And so now what do you want to do with the rest? It just made it so much easier. It also, as Rachel would probably agree, uh, makes budgeting a lot easier. So if if you are at that point where you have no idea how much you need, where things are going to go, they have charts and spreadsheets and the whole deal. So just hire an independent financial planner. Uh, maybe ask someone you trust to to refer one to you or Google someone in your neighborhood and um, yeah, see what you can find. So anyway, that's my my single best piece of financial advice for young leaders. And I would just say if we had discovered that uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 
um, man, it would have just gotten rid of a lot of uncertainty and perhaps a few disagreements along the way. So anyway, I hope that helps. Hey, we're back next time with Rob Palenka. Got a very exciting lineup. Make sure you check out the 30-Day Pivot uh, before it's too late. And thanks for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.